Hello and welcome to Talking Scared. I'm your host, Neil McRobert, and this week we're celebrating Christmas Eve the way it should be celebrated, with ghost stories. A very particular ghost story, in fact, Peter Straub's ghost story, one of the true classics of 20th century supernatural fiction. It's part of the canon of modern American Gothic novels, alongside Hill House and The Shining, but it often gets overlooked in comparison. Well, not today, because today I've gathered a crack team of enthusiasts to help commemorate its wonders. Alan Baxter is here to give the view from Down Under. Alan's the author of many novels, most recently Sago Bend and his duology of small-town Australian weirdness, The Gulp and The Fall. He was on the show to talk about them in episode 86, so go listen to that after this. Lauren Bolger is making her Talking Scared debut on this episode. She's the author of Kill Radio, in which a handmade crystal radio wreaks havoc on a young family, and the weirdness of that sounds very compatible with Ghost Story. And John Langan is here, a true scholar of the macabre and the author of The Fisherman, one of the essential classics of this century's supernatural fictions, and a clear successor to the work of Peter Straub himself. Together we're going to dig deep into the weird nooks and uncanny crannies of Ghost Story. We're going to talk about why it's so slippery and so hard to trap in place in the mind. We're going to consider what may be flaws and what are certainly strengths. And we're going to ask exactly what are the monsters at the swirling centre of this most unusual novel. One quick note before we begin... I think we give a pretty comprehensive overview of the book to start the conversation off on the right foot. But one detail we do neglect to explain early is the significance of the initials AM. We reference them a lot, and if for any reason you haven't read the book, or you've simply forgotten it, AM is the name of the central antagonist, a woman of many forms. (laughs) Right, I won't delay much longer, but if you've enjoyed Talking Scared this year and want to buy me a gift because I'm precious (laughs) consider supporting the show via Patreon it's easy and you get lots and lots and lots of bonus episodes just click the link in the show notes or go to patreon.com slash talking scared pod and the merriest of Christmases but now come with me to your own front window pull back the curtains take a look outside the streets are empty The night is silent, and whatever's stirring in your home is not a mouse. Let's talk scared. Hi, John, Alan, Lauren. Welcome to the Talking Scared sort of Christmas special. I hope you're all well and ready to talk ghost story. Absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for having us. First things first, before we do anything, we need to differentiate our voices, right? Because it it helps that we all have different accents. I think most people know my bumpkin twang by now. Um, and Lauren, you should be easy to pick out of this gruff lineup, but say hello. Hello, everyone. Alan, welcome back. It's been a while. It has been a while. How are things in the Antipodes? Um, hot and humid at the moment. It's one of those days where there's a storm just about to break, and I'm hoping it doesn't break while we're recording, <laughs> so it doesn't right. affect the Wi-Fi because I live in the country. Should be fine. Subclimatic conditions are completely 
inappropriate for this conversation then about a frozen New England winter. Yeah, if it was a snowstorm, it would be better. Like Christmas, it's a Christmas yeah. episode. But I've lived half my life in Australia and Christmas is a very stupid time. It's in the middle of summer and it's hot <laughs> and it's humid and it's ridiculous and it never feels like Christmas. So, Yeah, okay. Well, this may may help. We'll talk about old people freezing to death in uh, upstate New York. That well, that will help. remind me of growing up in England. So yes, old people freezing to death in the winter is a lot more Christmassy. <laughs> yeah, certainly the theme of this Christmas. Um, <laughs> yeah. John... I mean, you are closest, I think, to the setting of Peter Straub's classic. You're in upstate New York yourself right now. Is it freezing? Uh, it is cold, actually. It's it's just hovering around the freezing mark, uh, 32 degrees Fahrenheit, because I'm an American and we don't understand the metric system. Um, and we've had some snow uh, on and off. We had we had a, a little dusting, a light dusting of snow today. So yes, and I'm I'm about an hour and a half east of, of where the events of Ghost Story take place, the principal of, of the town of Melbourne, I should say. 32 Fahrenheit is exactly zero, just for uh, the nerdiness of it, in uh, in proper temperature. That's enough exactly of, your, enough of your gobbledygook, Baxter. What is this? <laughs> this is not a science program. <laughs> uh, um, oh, and, you know, I haven't asked, Lauren, where are you in the world? I am pretty close to Chicago. That's probably the closest you would be aware of where the heck I am. Again, Fahrenheit is the best I know as well. It's about like 35 degrees Fahrenheit here. We had some snow yesterday. Um, absolutely nothing today. So um, pales in comparison to our poor characters. That's like 1.5 C for the rest of the world. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> I swear to God, Baxter. I swear to God. <laughs> <laughs> I always cringe at how often I, I resort to weather at the start of these episodes. It's the the inner the inner Britisher in me, but this time it is at least relevant, right? Because this is a cold ass book. Um, mm. So I'm glad that at least three of us are in suitably frigid climes. Anyway, you're all in different parts of the world. I planned this episode and invited you on without considering that fact. So the only way we could find a time that was amenable for all of us without asking unreasonable efforts of you is for me to start recording a mammoth deep dive at 11 p.m. at night. So if I slide off into just nonsense, apologies. Um, but it's worth doing because I get to spend some time with you fine people getting right into the machinery of what I think is a, a truly classic piece of, do we even say modern anymore, kind of, you know, 20th century horror fiction. Peter Straub's ghost story. And we've already had some disagreement over Straub, Straub. We're just going to go with it. We all know who we mean, the man himself, the legend. Um, but, I mean, I just made a claim there, you know, that it's a true classic. Are we all agreed on that, at least? Do we have any secret ghost story haters amongst us? I hope not. I agree that it's... Uh... No, absolute classic. Yeah, yeah. No, no, no argument. Yeah. Good, good. Me right. Too. At least we're all on friendly terms to begin with. Where to start with it? I mean, as classic as it may be, as old as it may be now, I mean, it's, what, getting on for 50 years old, um, we always have to contend with the fact that some listeners will not yet have read the book. And fair warning, as with all these deep dive episodes, we're going full throttle on the spoilers. So bear that in mind if you haven't read it. John, I'm going to put you in the firing line. Can I ask you perhaps to briefly introduce the bare bones of Ghost Story? the main ingredients that listeners should be aware of before we start. I would be happy to. It, it was interesting. I ran across a, a you know a clickbait article the other day 
and I don't, I, I should have looked to see how recent it was, but in which Stephen King said, you know, was asked to recommend a book, a horror novel. And he said, ghost story. That was the title that he listed. Um, yeah. So I, I don't know if that's the case. I, I hope it's like, like, I hope it's a recent article. I hope that people will be coming to this episode saying, oh man, I read this book. I'd like to, to hear some people talk about it and say some, you know, smart things about it. Uh, ghost story was Peter Straub's fourth published novel, uh, the fifth novel that he wrote. It's remarkably different in tone from his previous two novels, which are also supernatural horror novels, but which are very, very focused on on one individual dealing with a supernatural occurrence, with a, with a haunting in particular. Um, this is a, a painted on a broad canvas, uh, inspired, among other things, uh, in part by, by Straub having read King Salem's Lot. This is set principally in an upstate New York town uh, named Milburn, which is located in Broome County, for those of you who know not Bloom County, but Broom County out by Binghamton, which is in sort of Western New York state, what John Ashbery calls the holy land of Western upstate New York. And, um, and it's about, a, a, it begins with a group of men uh, called the Chowder Society. They're all uh, uh, old age pensioners, I guess you would say, uh, except that they're, they're quite vigorous um, and something has happened. They're, they're a year before the, the novel begins, before we begin the novel one of their uh, one of their members has uh, has died they they're sort of an informal you wouldn't exactly call them a supper club it, it's more a sort of a a social club they hang out with each other they're a friend group um they they hang out and they talk to each other um in fact there were things much deeper in their personal history that that we we find out as the novel goes along that that draw them together so one of their members has has died um, a year ago, as the book begins, and, and the circumstances under which this man has died has left the the surviving uh, four members of this group bereft, but also full of a deep sense of dread, a deep sense that the world something has gone terribly wrong with the world, and and that that wrongness is is spreading, uh, metastasizing, and so they have started to tell each other ghost stories. Uh, one of them, uh, one of the characters, turns to the other that the, they don't know what to do, and says, "What's what's the worst thing you ever did?" And that that character says, "I, I won't tell you that, but I will tell you the most dreadful thing I ever saw." Words to that effect, and tells a ghost story. And this is what they've done at their meetings. They've told each other ghost stories, and those ghost stories are a kind of a substitution, if you will, for the thing that they don't really want to face, which is their friend's death. And also something else, as I said, beyond that, that they also don't want to face. Mm -hmm. So this, as this is going on, uh, strange things start to happen. Uh, and, and because of, of these strange things, they reach out to a young man who is the nephew of the man who died, the member of their group who died the year before. They reach out to, to his uh, nephew, who's written a supernatural horror novel. And they think, well, surely as a writer of supernatural horror, he understands <laughs> these things. And they uh, they ask him to come uh, to Milburn and help them. And he himself has had uh, a strange encounter with a woman uh, while he's been teaching at uh, at UC Berkeley in, in California, uh, a strange, enigmatic encounter with a strange, enigmatic woman, um, which has led to the death of his brother, 
the death of his older brother, uh, the sudden inexplicable death of his older brother. And so these figures come together. Now, there are many other, as I said, this is a large canvas. There are many other uh, characters who, who feature in the novel. Uh, there's a snowstorm that's, or, or I guess what I should say is it's, it begins around Halloween. Snow is already starting to fall. Uh, there are animals that are dying in the surrounding farms, uh, uh, sheep cows, horses, who are, uh, whose throats are being torn out and who are also uh, being drained of blood uh, with, no, with no footprints near them. There are um, a, an accumulation of, of supernatural events that are happening. And all of this, all of this Straub sets all of these, but he's like a juggler, you know, or, or one of those guys mm-hmm. with the plates on the end of the, of the canes. He sets all of these things spinning and then starts to draw them all together. And, and what we wind up with ultimately is, is number one, the, the disclosure of something that happened, the, the original crime, as it were, if it is the crime that lies behind a lot of, of what's going on in the book. Not all of it, but a lot of it. And and also, uh, I guess you might say, a series of confrontations actually between our protagonists and the monsters, and they are they are ultimately monsters in the novel. Beautifully done. That was <laughs> comprehensive, but not indulgent. Right. So everyone knows what we're talking about. If you've read the book, then that was a nice refresher. If not, I think you'll be able to understand some of what's going on. But let's start wide and narrow in on the detail. So, do you all remember your first encounter? with this with this story and its impact on you because i i don't i have a vague sense of being aware of this but can't remember reading it for the first time i've read it several times since then but i can't remember my first read of ghost story i can i can i've I've had an interesting relationship with this book to be honest growing up in england i discovered horror in my sort of early teens and was reading all sorts of things and Initially, <clears throat> I found like James Herbert and everything else led me to King, led me to Straub. And I remember originally reading Ghost Story probably in my late teens. And I know I read it then, but I don't really remember it then. What I remember is this dense and complicated book that I didn't really get. Yeah. Um, and it and it is um, it is a sort of complicated book, like, like John was saying, all the different plates he has spinning, the plot is in many ways so complex that keeping a grip on it. I was more used to the, the James Herberts and the Ramsey Campbells and the easily graspable sort of plots and, you know, then to discover this thing. And then I reread it again, probably in my late twenties and blew my mind. And I was like, that's what this book is about and you know i guess i had i don't know maybe just the maturity or the or the development enough to read it and now just recently before this podcast i've read it again um so i've read it at least three times but i i very clearly remember the first time reading it as a teen that i couldn't get my head around it i didn't quite i could just couldn't write i mean neil you described it when we were chatting before you described it as slippery Mm. which is a brilliant description of trying to hang on to everything that's going on in this book but I think it was just a matter of age, um, just being sort of in some ways too young to really get the complexities of it. I've got stuff to say about the whole King Straub comparison, that, uh, but I'll, I'll save that for later because I think that's a key part of why King is so much more popular than Straub, even though Straub is potentially, in my mind, the better writer. Okay. What about you, Lauren? Um, so I read it pretty recently, probably about three or four years ago. So I would have been 35, 36, something like that. 
Um, that was my first read of it. And one of the things I remember the most, I mean, I've definitely been frightened by other books before. This one scared me badly really? <laughs> and in a great way. Yeah, it really creeped me out. Um, you know, I've, there's other books like, um, I think the, a lot of the other ones that have scared me have been like nonfiction or marketed as nonfiction, like Mothman Prophecies or, you know, other books like that. But out of horror fiction books, I think a small percentage will like scare me, probably most of you as well, just because we read so many. Um, but yeah, it, it really scared me is one of the big things I remember. I remember a certain section um, and I turned off the lights to go to bed and I just had that feeling like feeling the feeling of something being there while you knew it wasn't accurate. Um, it was still a feeling and it was still there. It was it really affected me. Is that the Fenny Bates section by any chance? Actually, no, it's a Alma Mobley part. Oh, okay. I've tried to like talk about or think about why it affected me so much. And I think I have some reasons. But yeah, also just really amazed by the fullness of this town and how many characters there are. It's insane. It's, you know, they definitely there's the banker, there's the guy who operates the theater, there's someone for every place, but then also their families who also interact with, you know, some mm. of the main characters or antagonists. And it's, it just feels so real. It's wild. <laughs> well, well, we'll come back to all your points because everything you've said has piqued my interest. But what about you, John? Because I'm, I'm assuming you've read this book more than once. Uh, actually, I've never read this book before, Neil. I'm, it's, <laughs> <laughs> I'm a fraud. <laughs> you were just reading the Wikipedia. Uh, exactly. I was, oh, my God. <laughs> like, Wait, this isn't this at all. Um, I, uh, I I first encountered it in Stephen King's Dance Macabre. And, you know, at the end of that book, King has this, it's like a 120-page section about what was then contemporary horror fiction horror fiction from 1950 to 1980, and he lists 10 books. And, and Ghost Story was, I think, the second book. I think he, he talks about The Haunting of Hill House first, and then he talks about Ghost Story. And I was like, okay, I got to read this book. And my local library had it. Fortunately for me, you know, I'm thinking age-wise, I, I was somewhere in the neighborhood of 14 or 15 and my, you know, my parents were like, yeah, sure, you can take it out. They Because it was a library, the American, American library books anyway, don't have the dust jackets on. So ghost story, that sounds harmless enough. So I, I read it and I, I had that same kind of feeling of, oh my God, what, what is going on here? But, but not, like I understood enough that I enjoyed it. And when I got done with the book, almost my first thought was like, I missed half of that at least, but. I was excited by that. I was like, oh my God, I get to go back to this, you know? And, and so over the next several years, you know, I alternated between Ghost Story and, and the follow-up novel, Shadowland. Um, and then much later, I taught the novel. Um, and, uh, and then obviously for, for, for our podcast today, been, you know, diving into it once, uh, once again. And I guess I feel every time, every time I go through it, there's something, there's something new. There were some things I forget that I noticed before, you know, I'm like, Oh yeah, that, okay. Right. And then there were new things where like, I didn't remember the earth was shaking at that particular point. So yeah, it's, it's, it's a pretty remarkable book. It, it really is. And I, I mean, I, I, your opinion matters more than mine. I'm, I'm going to say this one thing because I am not a Peter Straub expert. I think I've read less than half of his books. Um, and quite often, I don't get on with his books first time around. Like I remember hating Coco and everyone tells me that I'm frankly 
wrong and an idiot. Um, and I, I believe them because I had the same thing with Ghost Story that I didn't like it the first time. Um, and I, so I need to revisit Cold Cold. Never read Mystery, never read The Throat. I've read his later metafictional stuff, which I love. But I'm not an expert in, in, in Straub at all. But I, I love this book despite all the things that should make me, they're not flaws, but they're things that should make me not love it. And I'm, I'm just very, co- very conscious as I talk. This is a celebration of Ghost Story. But I'm going to say a sequence of things that sound like I don't like the book. And it's a real paradox for me with this one. Because I find it bewildering. To, like, just what you said, Alan, like your reaction to it the first time is still the reaction I get. that I don't think I can fully put the pieces together. There's a, the causation, the... The, the the why a happens before b and after I, I don't i don't get it i can't map it and every time i read it it all slips away like like smoke and when i come back to it it's like reading it for the first time so i should hate it but i think it's a masterwork but that doesn't that doesn't make sense right at all i agree with you completely i think that's one of the things about it and like i was mentioning before you know like because you the, the, the stephen king peter Straub comparison is inevitable because you know they've co-written their contemporaries and king would always talk strober and you know people like king and barker have probably been more influential on my writing than anybody else but there's definitely an influence from straub in what i do as well but only sort of cherry picked because straub has this kind of this sort of density to the way that he plots that makes it difficult you kind of have to stay deep inside it all the time and it's very easy to lose your grip on on what's what's happening and where things happen and the way that he constructs things and the way that he bounces back and forth and it's masterfully done and the same as you every time i read it i sort of in some ways struggle to hold on and in other ways realize a bit more what's going on and this most recent reread um that i literally just finished rereading it last week and I definitely feel like I held on to it better this time than any time before. But it, it's it's a strange complexity that he builds into plots that in the hands of anyone else would be almost incoherent. But in the hands of Straub, who's such a master at this balancing act, that somehow he pulls it off. I know you've interviewed Peter, John. You interviewed him. I actually read your interview today the, for Nightmare magazine. Mm-hmm. Was that the extent of your dealings, or did you know the man? Uh, we were—I like to think we were friends. We were at least friendly acquaintances. Um, okay. He he uh, said lovely things about my writing in in different talks he gave and and in person. And we uh, we uh, hung out together at at a few different conventions. I once followed him as he went in quest of a chocolate fountain in a hotel room. <laughs> Uh, which we did find. Um, and, uh, yeah, I, I visited him the first time with Laird Barron, the second time on my own, I visited him at his uh, brownstone, uh, that, that he had in, in Manhattan. Yeah. I, I, I guess I feel that I had a, a, a decent, a, a decent relationship with him. He was very well loved and he had a lot of, a lot of different friends, you know, mm. King obviously, but, but he, he was friends with a lot of different writers and poets uh, within the genre, certainly, and without the genre as, as well. So, you know, I, I thought that to myself in preparation for this, I thought, wow, I, 
you know, I, I wonder what some of the poets he was friends with, like, I wonder what their anecdotes of Straub are, are like, or, or uh, a writer like David Plant, who's a, 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 no, he's an American, an American writer. But anyway, more, more of, I guess you would call it like a sort of slice of life, you know, realistic writer. I wonder what he would have to say about, uh, about Peter. So I, I think I have a little bit of a, of a grasp on him, but there was, he was a, a complex man. And I'm, um, mm. I'm actually grateful that there's, as much in terms of video interviews uh, and also in terms of, um, of written interviews with them as, as we have. Because I came to him obviously through his fiction. And I think, I think it was two things. I thought assumed for most of my life that he was this quite austere figure. Um, I think because of the quite tightly wound nature of his pro style, I assumed he was a tightly wound individual. And then um, I had a very brief correspondence with him back in the early days. I mean, I've told the story before, but I never get tired of, of my own story. Um, back in the early days of this podcast, I just mentioned him on Twitter and he got in touch. It's like most of the things in my life have happened in recent years. And we had this this back and forth where he wrote these emails that like, I've got one printed out because they, they are just, they, they're exactly the emails you want to receive from Peter Straub. Um, mm-hmm. there's, there's one in which we're talking about, again, I've told this before, but we're talking about whether to get him on the show for a Halloween special or a Christmas special. And he, he said this thing about like, let's do Christmas because, um, I forgot the quotes written down. He said something like that way, the work of the kind I do will not just be treated as, as an eccentric artifact of brief interest towards the end of October. Um, the enterprise might even take on a bit of what they call seasonal celebration, which means also that I might be treated as a writer per se, and not merely some kind of ghoulish little treat, like a little caramel coffin. And I was like, that is just... <laughs> a right? caramel coffin, brilliant. Yeah, that's the most perfect thing. I mean, that whole thing leads me into like one of the main questions I have about this book, which is the language. Because you com- said about the comparisons to King, Alan. Um, mm. I think his language could not be more different, to the point where I find yeah. it so interesting that they wrote books together because it's so ornate. I mean, put it this way. Would you call it ornate and elegant or would you call it stuffy and anal? Because I, I think it runs the spectrum. I think it does. I think it does run the spectrum a bit. And I think that language, that prose and that deep complexity of plotting is why he's not as popular or wasn't as popular as King because he's just not as compulsively readable. Um, mm. even though he was absolutely masterful in, in what he did. But, I mean, you're, you're right. There's a couple of things. Like there's there's one point in um, when when he's describing um, when when AM turns up and as, as um, Eva Galley's niece, and there's a line there when she turns up at Wheat Row and he said, he said about her a voice that would taste like port wine if you could drink it. And another one he said um, when, when she first encounters Peter Barnes, and I think it... I, I, I'm paraphrasing. I think the phrase was "her eyes licked at him," and so, so every once in a while he has this turn of phrase that's so sort of powerfully evocative, you know, which in the hands of someone else would seem almost purple, would seem almost, you know, it, it's like you said that what's the difference between something that's ornate and something that's self-indulgent on that front? But he does tend to run that gamut. But there is definitely a a sort of richness to his turn of phrase that. It's kind of uniquely straw. And yeah, it's fascinating to me as well, having, you know, reading things like, you know, Talisman and whatever, that those two styles, those two 
prose and language styles merge so seamlessly in those yeah. books because it seems incomprehensible when you read them separately. And we all play the game of trying to see where the, the stitches are in those books, right? I've done it of countless course. times. And I, I think <laughs> I have certain scenes isolated, but I'm, I know I'm almost surely wrong, um, even more so yeah. in, in Black House. Um, what about you, Lauren? Because coming to this first time sort of much later than the rest of us, so long after its publication, how did you find the actual language and pro style and all of that stuff? Yeah, I would definitely agree. Uh, definitely ornate. Um, I really, really enjoyed it, though. I mean, especially like, you know, the examples that um, that Alan gave. I just love how it kind of, it colors the character so well. I mean, the way all these interactions that she has, she is this like very sensual being and um, just like, you know, challenging people when she's not starting out super meek and unassuming but but yeah definitely ornate I think that would describe it really well one of the ways that language is so perfect for the book and I can't tell where the cause and effect is the choice of language or its use in the book but these old protagonists like when I was a kid I thought of them as like doddery old men but then when I reread it (laughs) age 40 I realized oh god they're only a few like decades older than me um (laughs) <laughs> but it's, I mean, as someone who's tried desperately to write a novel with an elderly protagonist, it is, I mean, I'm no Peter Stroud, but I found it hard. And it does give this book its most unique element, elderly protagonists. I love some of Sears's phrasing, just like, <laughs> I wish I could think of an example, but just these like really just old fashioned things that he says, they're just like, they're just, they're practically comical. It's It's awesome though. I love it. You were saying to me that you think of him as Sean Connery. Yes. Yeah. I feel like if someone were to play him and I were to get to pick, I would pick Sean Connery. Absolutely. (laughs) That's really interesting because I would never see it. Straw makes such a big deal in the book of how big Sears is. He's constant, almost to a, you know, fat shaming point of view that he's constantly going, you know, like Sears sits massively in a chair or leans forward hugely. I totally, I pictured him gaining weight for the role. And I do think Sean Connery is particularly tall as well. So that was, that even went into it too. I think I thought really far into it. Yeah, that's uh, a good shout. Like a, 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 yeah, like a Sean Connery with, with weight gain. Um, as Sears would be brilliant. It's interesting, yes. though, that with in terms of the elderly protagonists, even Straub counteracts it a little bit by talking about how much sort of younger and more vigorous Lewis Benedict is and then bringing in Don as the nephew, almost mm-hmm. like he's himself trying to offset. It's like, yeah, okay, this is the, the protagonists are a bunch of old men, but, but one of them's younger and he's really sort of vibrant and he still goes around picking up all the young ladies and Don's a young nephew and he's a young man and he comes in and then he's got the the, the Hardy and Peter Barnes characters as those sort yeah. of young. It's like he's, he's like he's almost deliberately trying to offset the fact that he's writing a book with old protagonists. Yeah, I do think like that whole having those multiple generations almost could have given him them an edge as well in fighting the antagonist. It's like because she, you know, she keeps returning and returning. And it's almost like there are these three generations of people here to fight her. And that's why they have that edge on at the final battle, mm. almost. But what I find funny about that is one of the, her main tactics is the use of sex. And it like it, it works at every generation of men. Like we're all yeah. these suckers, you know, like it, we never get over it from Peter Barnes all the way up to, to Louis Benedict and Ricky Hawthorne. It's it, yeah. 
This is the big question for me that has perhaps changed quite a bit on my most recent read. Do we like the Chowder Club, these these four old men? So Lewis Benedict, Ricky Hawthorne, James Sears and John Jaffrey. Do we like them? Do we see them as heroes? Are we supposed to like them? Yes, uh, but but not in not in a simple kind of of way. They are, and, and it's interesting because because I've been reading the book, but I've also been listening to the audio version, and and there were things that that come out in in this audio performance that. Um, that, that maybe I wouldn't have recognized as much on the printed page. And, and one of the things I realize is, is how much they are at times almost caricatures or can be performed almost as caricatures. And I don't mean that in a, in a bad way, but, but what I mean is that each of them represents, whether it's Sears or Ricky or Lewis, not quite calcification, but, but they're, they're certainly very staid. They, they certainly are sort of set in, in certain ways so that Sears is, is gruff and, and, you know, really, you know, obnoxious, right? Right. You know, sort of forthright to the point of being rude. Uh, and Ricky is is uh, is perhaps a little meek in in some ways. Where's a tie to bed? <laughs> right. Well, he wants to. He, he he says he he would like to, but he never. I don't. We. It's it's you know. Um, but I think that they Straub shows us them in their in their sort of follies. I think on some level, I don't want to say he deconstructs them. I, I hate to misuse that term that way, but he, he, he expands them outwards. So for example, Lewis Benedict is, is presented as the ladies man, but then what we find out as the novel goes on is in fact, yes, he does have relationships with women, but they are um, as much conversational relationships. And he doesn't go to bed with most of them. He only goes to bed with a few of them. And of those few, there are fewer still with whom he has long-term relationships. And he is fundamentally a lonely man who is mourning the, the, the inexplicable death of his wife, probably at the hands of AM, years and years before. And so he emerges, you know, and, and of the of the Chowder Club, he always has seemed to me in the past the most sort of problematic vis-a-vis his attitude towards women, right? He's the, the the Lothario figure. But this time through reading for that and, and trying to read closely and attentively for that, I thought, you know, he's his, whatever you want to call it, womanizing. I thought, but I don't think it's womanizing. I think he's playing the part of the old Don Juan. But in fact, what is going on is a profoundly lonely man who is unable to fill this gap in his in his life. He lives out in the woods, you know, in this what seems like a lovely house, but but by himself. And Sears James in the in the, the in, in a similar way. Yeah, he's often you know gruff to the but like I can uh, uh, the the Sean Connery thing is inspired casting because you can imagine Sean Connery with <laughs> yeah. some of those gruff kinds of lines, right? You know, yeah. absolutely not changing his accent for anybody. Um, but but at the same time, <laughs> we. Uh, <laughs> but he um, Sears, you know, Ricky, for example, sees through Sears. And mm-hmm. and sees that Sears is profoundly terrified at 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 times um, when Sears is is he he's the only one who really gives us a ghost story you know the the story within the story the rewrite of the turn of the screw um, and he, he he's sort of ironic about himself about his younger self but you know he's going out to to teach in the hinterlands because he thinks he's 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 going to do a good thing he's not going to beat the kids with the with the feral he's going to educate them and he's going to show them compassion and all this sort of stuff and those are noble impulses and and if they if they turn awry 
Um, it's because at, at that very early point in his life, he encounters something beyond his ability to, 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 to deal with. Sorry, that was a bit oh. rambly. But... No, no, it's, this is what we're here for, John. It's fine. But what about you, Lauren? Do you like them? <laughs> so I am fond of Ricky. Uh, I, he definitely feels like the voice of reason in a lot of ways. Um, and additionally, like John mentions, he, um, yeah, he understands Sears in, in a way. Uh, but yeah, I think he's, he feels like almost like if it were comedy instead of horror, he would be kind of the straight man. Uh, but, but basically, yeah, just kind of the out, the outrageous ways that like, you know, sometimes Stella behaves, um, and he, he understands and he's just like, kind of, just very tolerant of that. Um, and Sears, any reasonable person would be terrified interacting with him in any uh, significant way. Um, he he's the only one who seems to you know go up against Sears, um, and and like like John said, understand him. Um, and then John, it's like he he dies so early. I don't have a strong opinion of him either mm. either way. Uh, and then um, I'm trying to think. And Lewis. Um, I, I don't know if I, you know, like him or dislike him. There's a, like uh, John said, there is a lot to him um, and sort of, you know, I, I like his interactions with people. Uh, but yeah, and Sears, he was, I thought he was like the, mo- maybe the most interesting character though. Like, especially the scenes where he's handling Walt Hardesty at his uh, most excited. <laughs> I was always like really eager to hear what a Sears going to have to say about his, whatever he's screaming about now. <laughs> Because his his responses are are always uh, really entertaining. I always I think Sears is kind of a character type that I think of as our bastard, in that he's he's somebody <laughs> you would hate if he was on the opponent's side, but because he's on your side, you enjoy the worst parts of his personality, like the fact that he is so unfazed by the sheriff. You know, he's so gruff and brash and so unafraid of conflict. It's quite an attractive trait when he's in your camp and often they're, they're that's my favorite character trait like the really flawed person who you can root for um the, the my thing about those four as protagonists and i i may be wrong about a lot of stuff that i'm going to say in the next however long but to me this book makes conservatism the heroic impulse and it, it reminded me an awful lot of the wicker man Insofar as in the Wicker Man, Lord Summer Isle, his you know is putatively the villain. I mean, he's burning people alive and stuff. But when you watch that through the eyes of a you know like I don't, I don't know the counterculture or I assume young people at the time, it was too I, I was born too late. When you watch it through any other eyes other than conservative eyes, you're clearly you clearly think Edward Woodward is it the copper who goes to the island in the Wicker Man? It's just a staid sort of stick in the mud, like this like Christian conservative moralist who you can't stand. And I, I think to a degree, ghost story is the same. It makes that the heroes are the conservatives. And that seems really strange and jarring in a to a contemporary reader, I think. Yeah, I definitely see where you're coming from there. And um, I know I don't want to jump ahead into the whole mm-hmm. misogynist part of it. That's next. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> oh, because, yeah, one of the parts that, like, I found the most jarring was uh, just the, a lot about the scene. Um, again, I I know we're allowed to do spoilers, but 
I'll just say in Edward's apartment in the hollows, that is sort of like a, a flashback um, that explains a lot in the story. But yeah, exactly what you're saying, just pitting this whole like, you know, she's wild and violent and super mm. sexual and all they want is to like behave and for her to calm down. I think that contrast uh, is very jarring to read in 2023. I, I think in some ways it's exactly that that's Straub's masterstroke in this because like all all four members of the Chowder Society are are unpleasant in, in, their, in one way or another. You know, like Sears is a dickhead. Ricky is just so sort of meek and malleable. Jaffrey, you know, like Lauren said, you don't get a lot of him, but you do kind of get this impression that there's, you know, that there's a certain potential incompetence about him as, you know, even as a doctor, as his trade or whatever. You know, um, Lewis is this kind of sleeping around kind of guy. There's, and I think in some ways this is probably a lot of what put me off when I was reading it very young. Um, you absolutely don't need likable protagonists to enjoy a book, but you've got a group of people here who are genuinely kind of unpleasant in a variety of ways, and yet um, Straw builds their friendship with each other and makes you empathetic to the way that they respect and interact with each other and offset each other's worst tendencies and impulses. And then he sets it against this far bigger problem in AM and the monsters that they're up against and stuff so that you absolutely want them to win because you want them to beat this sort of horrible thing that's going on. And he kind of forces you to go along with these people who you probably wouldn't like in real life for a variety of different reasons, but that you sort of go along for the ride with and, and you root for them to beat the evil as it goes, even while you're trying to wish they were better people or different people or whatever. And through the course of the book, in some ways that does happen. They do grow against each other and they do sort of kind of temper each other in different ways. I, I think it's a, it's a remarkable thing that Straub's done in that respect with that particular group of protagonists. And I, I enjoyed that a lot more now as a more mature reader than I did before. I recognised that immediately. Like I say, I think when I first read this, I was stupid enough to ascribe endorsement to the author you know this is what the author thinks this is what he means that these characters are basically him i was i think i was dumb enough and young enough to do that um reading it now ha having read countless strobe interviews and other books and on his website he talks about when asked for advice for young authors he says like basically don't take as many drugs as me and stephen king did <laughs> so you get the sense that he is a, a much wilder or, or capable of capable of being much wilder than these old coots in this book. So I think once I understood that and I saw them as constructs, I could enjoy them a lot more because I wasn't I wasn't seeing the tone as necessary endorsement of being conservative. Um, and I mean conservative with a small C. That kind of you know protect the status quo. We we don't like we really we really don't like sexy people. <laughs> you know that 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 kind of attitude they have. Um, but it does bring us. And I'm wary of this because, like I say, I want it to be a celebration of the book. But it does bring us to this 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 issue of misogyny, and you know, almost it's everywhere in this novel, right? Almost every woman in this book is pinned down in the Madonna whore trap, you know, and and all the men, even the even the heroes, abide by that dichotomy, you know. I I think it's right, obviously, as to give you the first crack at this, Lauren. How did you take that when you read it? Did you take it as a product of the book's era? 
and the time it was written? Or do you take it as an actual intentional theme of the horror? That's a good question. Um, I, I actually, I thought about it more in, uh, in terms of the time that it was written. Um, Cause yeah, I was trying to kind of think about like how few <laughs> there, you know, there are plenty of female characters in the book, but mm. there are only, as far as I can remember, I didn't like go through the entire thing and like mark it down. But I think I only noticed a couple of parts where there's a point of view scene from the perspective of a female. I think it was Stella Hawthorne when um, that uh, I can't, the guy in the blue car, um, what yeah. is he? The Jehovah's the Je- witness the Jehovah's witness is, yeah. is trying to collect her. Um, oh yeah. Also, I think when she's um, breaking up with that uh, gentleman <laughs> And then yeah. um, Millie Sheehan, or Sheehan, Sheehan, I'm not sure how it's pronounced, um, when I believe She's it's She's John like when... Jeffrey's kind of living maid and stroke lover, right? Yeah, exactly. And I think, like, it, it definitely, you know, to some degree, I guess it bugged me a little, um, especially because Stella Hawthorne is, like, if you were to include somebody in the Chowder Society, she would be probably a good candidate. Um, she's almost like, she feels like a, a female Sears James to me sometimes. So there were only a few point of view scenes from female characters and they were, you know, they mattered to the plot, but they weren't hugely significant to it. Um, so it, it's definitely something I noted. Um, but yeah, that was my, my immediate assumption was just, it's because of the time it was written in. I did feel that exclusion when I was reading the book. Um, okay. I definitely still enjoyed it hugely, but, uh, but yeah. I found it really interesting that, um, like you, like you said, Neil, like it, it, the, the book is just blithering in misogyny in, in every sort of, at, at, at every point. And, but I don't, I don't see it as particularly, um, I don't know what's the best way to describe it. I, I don't see it. I, I see it in some ways as deliberate in the same way that the Chowder Society characters are who they are. Like, you know, like, um, Laura mentioned Millie Sheehan as um, like Jeffrey's sort of unofficial wife. It's like it says so much more about Jeffrey than it does about Millie. And obviously it says stuff about her that she would accept this sort of place. But it shows this kind of weakness and fear in Jeffrey that he has a housekeeper who's clearly his wife, but he can't admit that to anyone. And you've got Ricky Hawthorne with Stella, who is you know, she just sleeps around with whoever she wants to, you know, talk about the Madonna Hall thing, as you mentioned. Um, and and Ricky just takes it and just puts up with it and just go, you know, he knows that she's always sort of going to come back to him and that's just a thing that she does sort of thing. It's it's, it's almost like the misogyny is a deliberate um, foil for who these people are and, and how unpleasant they are in certain ways. And so like you said, you know, is it is it unintentional or is it part of the horror? I kind of feel in some ways like it's both. There's definitely a certain flavour to it that Lauren points out, you know, that is the time that it was written in the early 70s. But I do think as well, you know, I don't think it's, you know, I don't think it's giving Straub too much credit to suggest that these are brushstrokes that are being added to develop who the people are and develop what the situation is. Um, And I know we're going to get a bit later on into who or what AM is, but I think it's also in some ways set as a reflection of that, that these are the sort of 
you know, the earthly issues around um, sexuality and marriage and relationships and whatever else. And then you've got AM, who is this kind of level above. Um, so I, I guess we'll talk about that a bit more when we get to it. But it's, I, I do, I, I feel like there's definitely some influence of the time. It would have been handled probably differently or more subtly if it was written now. But I think it's deliberate in terms of, yeah, in terms of the characters, particularly the child of society and who they are. There was one thing to Alan's point as well that I remember, um, you know, where he's talking about it being intentional. Just the lack of regard for Millie Sheehan at some points was just, uh, <laughs> yeah. there was one part where she <laughs> yeah. was real upset about John, her, like, basically her life partner dying. And she, I don't remember what she was doing, if she just looked really disheveled or she wouldn't come out of her, of the room in the Hawthorne's house. Um, but see, but they were talking about her and how she wasn't doing very well. And Sears' response was like, well, what could be wrong with her? She inherited all his money. It's like, okay, there's <laughs> nothing else she could be upset about, like that he's yeah, she dead. she got the house. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I, I wonder how much of that is Sears' weird naivety, that he's perhaps unaware sure. of it, you know, that, that there was anything more to them, or at least that what more there was meant anything to her. It's a weird... Well, it was also... It was also Stella going, what yeah. the fuck is wrong with you guys? Go and get Millie. She can't be on her own. Go and get her. We need yes. to look after her, you know. Yeah. Like, and so, you know, Straub's awareness is there. Yeah. Mm. But my – sorry, I don't know if you've got anything to add to this, John. Uh, yeah, but go, but go ahead, Neil, if you want to if, if add something first. I mean – I was just going to say that I completely agree with you, Alan, right? I think it is something that creeps in at the edges but is also – clearly indicative of character um and i mean we made very similar point about the whole treatment of bev in king's it on the whole her characterization is a reflection of themes within the novel and i think this is the same but there there are two instances and and weirdly they are kind of pivotal things in this book that i thought about them from today's perspective i think it's really interesting so first of all you have the whole don wanderley account so don to reiterate is the the, the the dead Chowder Club member, it's his his nephew who is a horror writer who's had this experience out West with with another iteration of AM, who we will get to. Um, but anyway, Don tells this story about his dealings with Al, this woman, Alma Mobley, and that's the section you said freaked you out, Lauren, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. Right. Read through a modern lens, this is the story. <laughs> it's supposed to be a horror his horror story, but basically he meets one girl dumps her because essentially she's too fat and or needy, meets another girl who in kind of millennial parlance is the perfect manic pixie dream girl, and that's Alma Mobley, and he loves her quirks but hates her excesses. He obsesses about her, stalks her, panics when she mentions marriage and then dumps her by letter and then completely collapses into alcoholism at the loss of her. And it's just like, Don, you, you... you're really not the victim here, mate. <laughs> no, no, no. There is the fact that she's she's in fact a sort of demonic shapeshifter, which agreed does does change things a little. Um, but he doesn't know that. That's my point. He doesn't know that, and he thinks he's the victim. And with the information he has available to him, he he's he's a prick. <laughs> There's a really strange naivety to to him as well, and I assume not to straw but to him where he's really worried that she's got friends in the oto uh, you know that make makes he's terrified of her that she might have connections to these 
you know, this sort of weird demonic society, which satanic cult people. Yeah. Yeah. Which is not what the OTO is. And it's like everything about the way that Don reacts to who she is or what she's about and all the things he fears about her are so naively constructed. And it's like, she's just, she's not a meek, mild housewife, but equally that's not what you want. That's what you're attracted to is how wild and powerful and everything she is. So it's a, it's a strangely weird sort of naivety to his fears about her. That, yeah, it's a, it's a real juxtaposition. Actually, just what Alan said right there, I, I just wanted to, I don't know, throw this out there. So my edition of, of Ghost Story also mentions, you know, OTO is the gang that she's associated with. And I thought, that's odd. I don't remember that from the paperback edition I had. And sure enough, in the paperback edition, at least in the American edition, it's XXX. That's what I've got name. in my edition. Yeah. 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 I got and, so and confused because I, I thought I had it wrong. <laughs> like, how- Oh. <laughs> Yeah. It made me wonder, you know, my, one of the questions I have now just is, is sort of a publication question. You know, was the book edited from the time of, of hardcover to paperback uh, uh, reprint? Because people were like, OTO, come on, Triple X sounds a lot better than than uh, than OTO. Is that Triple X? Were they a real thing? Uh, you know, I meant to check and I don't know for sure. Because yeah. I know that the OTO was Alistair Crowley's kind of. 20th century spin-off right that's his thing but i'd never heard of xxx and wonderly talks about how they are linked to sort of the manson cool out the manson family, yeah, yeah. very exciting yeah um yeah but, yeah context would definitely give it away but that that's yeah that's really interesting but can i i, I just uh, I, I wonder though not just to, to derail the conversation but i i did just want for a second to circle back around to the the kind of misogyny questions or the, or the sort of sexuality questions. And, and um, you know, there's a scene very early in the novel when Sears is remembering being a young man and babysitting uh, his, his, his hot neighbor's kids. Mm. There's a, you know, there's a a scene there where Sears as a, and and Sears is like a very asexual creature as an old man. Right. Um, But as a young man, he notices this young woman. And at one point, he creeps into her room and finds uh, her blouse, her silk blouse, and masturbates into it. And then takes it away, you know, sort of throws it away later. He's not asked to babysit anymore. There were moments like that in the book that struck me as, as uh, pardon the pun, pregnant. That, you know, there's, what is that blouse, right? That, that blouse is, it's an empty shell. And it represents a kind of a vision that he has of this woman as this, as this embodiment of his adolescent sexuality and, and his longing. And he master it's masturbatory. It's, it's, it's not, he's not having a, re, a relation with her. He's having a relationship with his fantasy of her. And then he's embarrassed by that. So he throws it away. He, he disposes of the rock. And it, it seemed to me that, that there are, you know, Straub famously said to King at one point uh, that the King had not discovered the erotic. Um, and King was like, I've got three kids. I know all about the erotic. Um, but, but you know, I, I think that there's also something going on here, I think, which is like reaching back to like D.H. Lawrence and Iris Murdoch. Um, th- there's this interest in, in eroticism as as like a sort of primal power or something like that. And these men don't really understand that that power. Um, you know, when Don is with uh, 
Alma. And there are a few points where he thinks she looks like a boy. She could be a boy. And then he's like, oh, no, she's not, you know. But but like, like again, not to we keep saying we're going to get to this. Right. And, and so I don't want to like spoil too much. But but, you know, what she is, the, the, the kind of thing that she is, is is you know, you are a ghost, right? Like, like, like I reflect you, I reflect what we are. She, she's a mirror. And, and so I do think that, that, that while the book, the, there, there's some extent to which you have to look at the book and say, yeah, absolutely. Seventies. This was, you know, the age of Updike and Philip Roth and all that kind of stuff. At the same time, there's a kind of um, awareness of, the the role of the erotic let's call it and and maybe the way that men have a really hard time with it too and and with dealing with it you know the just as another aside you know the 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 don wanderly experience that he has um that forms the basis for his novel which is not exactly about that he, he that experience when he when he's when we read his journal you know, Don is like, well, this is, I, I changed this in my novel to make it work in my novel. There, there's this weird kind of displacement that goes on, even in terms of, of thinking about Sears with the blouse. There's this weird kind of displacement that goes on throughout the novel where where um, experience is constantly being shuttled in, into something else. It's, it's there's, there's always something else. Um, or, or you could say that whatever is happening right now, there's always some distant experience that, that it relates to in some way. I, I don't, I don't know if I'm articulating this particularly well, but I, I feel like um, the, the erotic for these, for these characters is something that they are deeply terrified of. And in, in, in most cases, Lauren sort of brought up a while ago about, I mean, I, I am going to spoil it, Lauren, you were very kind to not spoil the big mystery for people, but <laughs> I, I am going to spoil it. What you find out that the skeleton in the, in the child of society's closet is that when they were young men, they they didn't murder, but they were inadvertently responsible for the death of a woman. And then even more creepy, like the disposal of her body so that they can maintain their privilege. I mean, that's quite something they they say, you know, like they need they want to maintain their position as kind of young bucks around town. Um, and and that happens because they are terrified of her unbridled sexuality. This, this is a woman who's lost her lover, who they still kind of look up to, and but she knows they that she knows they're obsessed by her in a very adolescent way, and she comes around and she's clearly like railing against life and drunk and all over the place, and they're so horrified by this that it's no. And I think what they're horrified by is that it is it's overspilled the bounds of fantasy. This isn't. Sears his blouse. This is them in a room with a woman who has far more power than them in that situation. And they're terrified by it, which I completely get that terror. <laughs> but the, the results are awful. And they're haunted by that. And these days, I just think, again, with this modern lens thing, and this isn't a criticism, it's just an interesting point. If you were to read this book now, the spine of this book is that, and how does this land after me too? It's a collection of very well-regarded, privileged white guys who are facing the reckoning for having mistreated a woman many years ago. And I think if you write that as the elevator pitch these days, they are the monsters. Now, obviously, the book isn't, you can't even argue the book is that way because of what she is, which we'll get to now. 
But I just think that's really interesting. With you know, that is such a one eighty shift on how I think anyone who didn't have the context would read that scene these days. Yeah, no, she's she's a mirror. Oh, that is a good point. I it's funny that you bring up the mirror thing because that was one of the things that I was um, confused by. Like whenever they would ask her, "What are you?" and she would say, "I am you." Yeah, that was throwing me off. I didn't understand that. So that's really that she's a mirror. That's that makes a lot more sense when you say it that way to me, anyway. But what, what does that mean? Because I I'm not sure about that. What does that mean? Because there's there's the narcissus myth that keeps popping up. There's the thing about I I saw a ghost. Then she says, no, I I am a ghost. And then she says, no, you are a ghost. And every time they confront one yeah. of these ghosts, which we haven't talked about in an hour, which we will talk about, this mirror thing, I don't understand it, John. Please educate me on this. I, I mean, not to oversimplify it, but it's it. It's Pennywise. If, if you think about, <laughs> you know, these are these are creatures that are extremely long-lived. Um, remember that, that when, uh, is it when Don takes her to the movies, she's utterly fascinated by, by the, she's like, oh my God, I'm like living this life. That was crazy. Uh, and at one point, I think Gregory Bate, um, a reference to Norman Bates probably, right. But Gregory says something like, you know, you entertain us, um, in the, and, and in the same way that we've entertained you is the kind of source for all your monster stuff. But if, if, if you look at it, that they are, ref, they reflect us back at, at, at ourselves. They, um, remember, um, when Peter is with, um, the rowdy boy, um, James Hardy, James. Yes. When he, when he's with James, um, James says, oh, I went into her room and there was nothing, no clothes in her closet. And then like a couple of days later, I went back and there were clothes in her closet. So so they are adapting to what we project onto them. So in that climactic scene, I, I think, when when the, the young men confront this woman who is grieving, but who also just, she sort of throws their own desire back at them. This is what they want and they're terrified of it. Which again, is is not to not to absolve them of, of responsibility for what they do, but there's the bizarre moment, right? Where they're disposing of her body and then they see her face in the, in the window of the car. Um, as if she's saying there was, you know, this was a test and you failed the test, but it is a series. And this is, I guess what I was alluding to earlier, it's a series of displacements, right? That, that, that the ghost story. And I mean, this is what makes the book so wonderful to me, but also complicated. The ghost story that, that Sears tells us about Gregory and Fenny and, and such, mm. um, the, the rewriting of the, of the turn of the screw, right? That is in place of talking about the, the primal, the primal sin, the, the murder of this, of this woman or, or the, the enacting of a murder, even if the murder didn't happen, you know, and it's funny, right? They're lawyers. This is a very legalistic kind of thing. So your honor, legally, she's a supernatural creature. She didn't die. But in terms of their intentionality, they certainly thought that they, that they had killed her. Um, so yeah, she, she is, um, you know, the Manitou, right? The, the creature that you chase up into the woods and then it turns around because it just has to show you itself. It's all, it, it's, it's narcissistic. And so we're ghosts because we are so short lived next to these creatures. They're ghosts because they're so long lived next to us. So it's this encounter as I see it. And, and this is, you know, um, but it is encountered with with these these supernatural creatures. Um, and there's a little bit, I mean, I feel like um, at this particular time, there are a number of novels 
that say this is the origin of all the vampire and werewolf stories. You know, David Morrell writes a novel called uh, Totem, which is the same kind of it's mm-hmm. it's it's a much more physical novel, but this is where you get all these monsters from. And so here, it's it's the mirror uh, is is the original ghost, and and because what do you see in the mirror? You see yourself, but it's not me, but it's different. Um, it, it just occurred to me at this moment. I mean, our I've always assumed that Gregory and Fenny have stepped are 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 the same Gregory and Fenny that Sears encountered, and yet are they, or are they just right. other creatures that are that are taking on, because that is so much in Sears's mind, and it maybe tells you something about Sears, if that's what he's projecting this this child that he failed. So there's there's so much to say about that because when we were saying right at the start, Alan, about you know the the slippery nature of this book. I think the thing that has always slipped away for me that I've never got until this read through is how all the manifestations connect. Um, so you've got the bait. So for, for listeners who have read the book, but haven't read it or who have forgotten, in, in Sears' ghost story that he tells to the Child Society, he goes in his youth to teach in this incredibly rural school, like real backwoods. And whilst he's there, he encounters these this family an older brother and two young children um the boy is called fenny the older brother is called gregory gregory is having a sort of abusive sexual relationship with his kid siblings um and then very much like turn of the screw whilst gregory's at the window fenny bates dies in Caesar's arms i've got questions about that in a moment and then they come back in modern day milburn and i was always like well hang on why are they there because why would they be there? What what have they got to do with AM, Alma Mobley? Also, why is Alma Mobley over in Berkeley haunting Don in a different guise? And I never got it. I never got it at all. And then this time around, I think my understanding is that they are creatures that, like you said, John, are, are at the bedrock of all our fairy tales or all our, our myths and legends and horror stories. And they've always been there. And they've chosen to interact with us rather than kill us because the one thing that we have that they don't is we tell stories and that fascinates them. We have imagination and they need yeah, the, that imagination. At the beginning of the novel, when Don Wanderley is driving with a little girl, that, that really yeah. unsettling kind of scene, right? Mm-hmm. There's a, a bit where he's just listening to country music and it all just flows into this one long narrative of, of mm. you know, whatever lost trucks and, and, you know, broken hearts and so on. And I, I can't help but think that that's how the creatures see us, you know, that, that we're just this long sort of story that, 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 that is playing on the, on the radio. I mean, yeah. I, 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 I think to myself and, and I don't have any particularly good answers. And I, I feel that, that, that AM appearing to, to Don, you know, maybe part of a, a sort of elaborate revenge plan, right? Since since his uncle was was one yeah. of the original sinners, then, you know, everybody... But, but of course, you could then ask the question, but what about Ricky and Stella's disappointed children? Why aren't they... Why aren't they targeted? Maybe maybe the failures of... Maybe they are. Yeah. Punishments enough, yeah. Or, or, but so I, I, I assumed that that was why Don was targeted, was because he was mm-hmm. he was part of the of the group... And, you know, the the question for me, even beyond this, right, because, you know, is we, we don't know what happens to the little girl, um, Fenny's younger sister. Yeah. We, oh, she was just she was just farmed off to a, a local family. Um, 
so is she am or is she you know is that story that sears tells us in some way the genesis of all of this that he's out there these creatures are doing their thing out in the woods uh, because he keeps telling us how rural everything is how it's surrounded by the woods and the story of the manitow is of of the the native warrior chasing this this stag through the woods so so are they these creatures that are attracted they're sort of attracted to sears then because of his interaction with them and cuz cuz he's a young like what's the age difference between Sears's story in the narrative uh, uh the, the story to the chowder club excuse me and and the the murder or, or whatever we want to call that it's not that many years so there's there's time for her to have drifted over to to hmm. to Milburn to to check him out i mean this is a lot of invent or supposition on on my part but this is what the book uh, demands of you right it demands that you form the links i mean what about you two do you have any thoughts on what these things are? Do you think, is it naked on the page or is it, do you have to interpret? I was thinking um, the whole, that whole revenge thing was part of everything. Cause they also mentioned like Lewis's wife um, getting killed the same way. And then they have that. Exactly. Um, yeah. Whoever the aunt is, I can't remember her name. It was, uh, shoot. The... Oh, Mrs. DePacer. Florence DePacer. Yes. Yeah, exactly. She's an enigma because what is she? Who is she? Where does she fit into all this? You know, that's exactly that was going to be my question. Yeah, yeah, because <laughs> yeah, Alma Mobley references her, and she's traveling with the younger version of Alma Mobley, um, whatever her name was at that time. I can't something AM something. Um, uh, but yeah, so I I was tracing that back, and I was wondering the same thing: is like why didn't Stella and Ricky's kids get targeted and i almost like the, the funny part was like were they like justifying that they're so miserable that there's nothing <laughs> that needs to be done with them <laughs> because at one point they were talking about like how his daughter uh was was very clearly pretending she was happy when she was very unhappy <laughs> yeah. like is that how they got away with uh not being visited by a it's a weird thing isn't it i i this time around i was trying to figure out the the don connection and I do think it's something to do with the fact that Edward was responsible for the original, well, not responsible, but was there um, with the original death of the woman in, in his apartment. Um, but then he died and I started thinking, well, maybe maybe Don was someone brought in to extend a revenge. But we, we know from John Jaffrey's party that Edward died at the hands of am right because she revealed herself to him and it caused a heart attack and like was was she so pissed off that he died so quickly and easily and she didn't get to play out this exotic revenge plan that she needed to bring in a, a, another wonderly to play that role um and here's this horror writer in california and um his nephew so she sort of engineers for them to invite him in to replace the missing member so that she gets to play out her revenge. But all of this is so much later. And, and this was two, two questions that I was going to bring up on that whole sort of reasoning. One was exactly what uh, Lauren just mentioned before. Who's Florence de Pesa? Like, what, what is the connection there? That's something I, I still can't grasp. And why now? Why did she, why after all this time and their old men and everything else, why is it happening now at this point in their lives? And did, John Jeffrey's party was that supposed to be the start of it, but Edward died too early. And so she's, you know, following it up. Why is it all happening now from an event that happened when they were 
young men and this sort of, you know, this great reflection of their small C conservatism again, where they're absolutely terrified by the sudden sexuality of this woman, so much so that it actually, you know, resulted in her death and sort of triggered all these events. It's like, why then wait 50 years before playing out this situation? There is, these things operate, I mean, I presume on a sort of a different timeline. You know, my plans, for example, for revenge on Alan, for that thing he doesn't even know about, like he's going to be an old man. Look at him. He's he's fit right now. He's a Kung Fu master. No way I'm going near him now. I'm going to wait till he's an old man and decrepit and then, then I will strike. So I, I think there's something to that. There's something about the fear of old men, I think, that is quite poignant because we often see old men presented in fiction as either very stalwart and, you know, I've been through a war, I don't care about you, or they're kind of resigned to their fate. There's something chilling about like, the impotent terror of old men who no longer have the no longer have the resource available to them to, to fight the good fight. Um, and, and also, but they've also got a wealth of experience, which is an, its own kind of heroism and its own toolkit. But I think... I think it's a much more interesting story tracking them down as elderly men than it would be if they were in the prime of life. A much more interesting there, story. There is one point where um, Sears and Ricky are left after the, a meeting and they basically have this sort of conversation that alludes to that. They're basically like, look, we're, we're, we're old men. We haven't got long left with, you know, what are we even doing? I suppose we, we should try to make the most of this. And it, 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 I think, yeah, maybe you're right that it is purely that point that time is irrelevant to this creature, whatever it is. And so she just waits until they're old and weak where it's going to be that much more terrifying for them, that much more, um, you know, they're going to be able to do so much less about it because they're they're older, they're weaker, they're more frightened or whatever else. I, I mean, yeah, you, it's an interesting point. It could be as simple as that, just simply because time time is not especially relevant. I also wonder if, like, from a narrative standpoint, it's, it, to me, it's a really interesting choice, um, you know, to uh, so often uh, fiction in general, but but I feel like horror narratives in particular focus on the young and, and especially like like these days, adolescence, you know, and, and so to say, no, no, I'm going to have like four old guys to start with. I mean, you could argue that because he gives you that opening section with Don Wanderley, he gives you a young man to start with. So... So, you know, if he if he detours to tell you about old men, that's OK, because you know that you're going to get back to the young guy and, and you do. But but nonetheless, um, I also wonder, I like on the one hand, I applaud the aesthetic bravado of that. At the same time, I do wonder when we talk about, you know, why do people resist this novel or, or why hasn't it had the same whatever you want to call it as as say it just to, to pick a random, not quite random novel. But, you know, in it, everybody, the kids are young and even 25 years, 27 years later, they're still kind of young, uh, whereas mm-hmm. these guys are are as we were saying, they do not seem at all that old to me at this point in my life. But yeah, when I was 14 or 15 reading this, I was like, oh my God, do people live that long? Yeah, why, are they, why are they even trying to stay alive? Right. <laughs> well, I've got Actually, reason now to stay alive and wait for Langan's revenge. I've got to stay live long enough to figure out what he's got planned. It's coming, Baxter. It's coming. <laughs> It's funny you say why I even try to stay alive because that that part at the very end was super, it came off as comical to me as well, where uh, they're trying to defeat like um, the latest or the last version of AM. They have these visions and 
someone meaningful to each of the remaining characters is basically trying to convince them they're like these beings are amazing and you are nothing and you should really just give up because they're better than you <laughs> and it just that made me think of it as well but it was that part was like probably intentionally somewhat comical um but also you know scary scary and uh challenging for the characters of course well, well you said before lauren that this book scared you um and I want to talk about fear now because quite a few people have written to me on social media when I, when I said we we're doing this to say that this is the scariest horror book they've ever read. I just don't get that. I think it's wonderful. And, and most of the horror books I absolutely adore don't scare me, to be honest, because um, the, the fear to me interrupts my enjoyment of the story in some way. Um, so it doesn't scare me, but I, I find it wondrous in other ways. But why did that scene, that that section with Don Wanderley and, and Alma get under your skin? Okay, so I, I had to think about it a lot because I, I wasn't sure why I was so creeped out. Um, I think, and this kind of goes with the overall theme of like the big thing being isolation. Like one of the things that I was so impressed with with this book is how you can make an entire town feel that isolated like it they really did it so well um you know in a lot of different ways like when they were comparing like when they went to the hospital in Binghamton um you could kind of like they he made a few comparisons of um you know just like you see cars there's like there are taller buildings um but additionally when uh Donald is with Alma um, I think he does that in a lot of ways where, um, you know, he's, you know, it's the typical thing too, where like a lot of times if you're in a relationship and you are that into somebody, maybe you don't go out as much. You're just like kind of hanging out together and spending a lot of time together. Um, but so there were, I think there was isolation there because he didn't have any interest in anything besides her during that part. Um, but then I think like, it's, I feel like it's, it had to be intentional and like just it was very gradual how you would throw in all these like unsettling strange details and almost like confounding where she would she was like very mild-mannered as like a lot of iterations of her are when she first encounters somebody in the story um very cool character but also just very like even tempered there's just like you know there's no she just seems like someone you can't ruffle her feathers but she also seems very like interested in him but just the way like she brings in these strange details like that she is in the in triple X, which like kind of weirds him out a little bit. And then you bring in, um, you know, Gregory Bate. I think it was Greg Benton or something when he was with her. And then 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 the part that I think started to really confuse me and weird me out, which on the reread, it wasn't as scary because then I knew that it was a fabrication. But um, the ghost boyfriend, she's like talking about this ghost boyfriend and he's watching us and he approves of us. And he really likes you. And here's what he thinks. Like if I were dating somebody and somebody told me that, that's really, really freaky. Like that's messed up. So that part's like kind of unsettled me. But then like the big scene where they sort of like, he's, he's at David's place and it's just the two of them. And the fog is like pressing up against the windows, which I think is probably her doing this because there's the whole, you know, snow is constantly coming down. So I think she has some kind of control over this, but like the fog is coming so close to the windows that you can't see out the window. All you see is fog and it's like dark even during the day and the days are just like blurring into each other. 
And then I think there's a part where he touches her and he feels like revulsion. And it's like a very strong feeling. And you're like, why though? Like none of it is totally making sense, but everything is just combining to make you feel creeped out. And then there's this part where she like, um, I think he wakes her or she wakes up and she's staring out the window and you're still thinking about this ghost boyfriend. Is he around right now? Like what is going on? And he can't get her to answer him. And she's just standing there for like an hour or more, just staring out the window at nothing, not responding. It's like all of that, I think just like combined in the whole isolation and strangeness of it. Just, I think it was all of that. <laughs> so very long answer, but that's what it was, I think. No, you're right. She, she's very unnerving character. She's kind of like a walk and embodiment of the uncanny valley because you know something's not quite right, but you don't know what. Um, yes. Yeah, I think she's mm -hmm. wonderful. What about... What about you, Alan? Does any, if it, if it, whether it scares you or not, this always interests me about this book. Is the one scene when you think about this book that like is the scene? <laughs> There's a few actually. It's it's interesting listening there because I'm the same as you. Often the things that the books that I love the most don't actually scare me. Mm. Um, like John mentioned it before, and I remember the first time I read that there's that scene where Pennywise is just sliding across the ice with coins in his eyes. And that just freaked me the fuck out. And it's like that, that's my, that's my favorite image in the entire book. That's my favorite yeah. image in my favorite book. That's yeah. So Ben, anyway, that that's one of the times, that's one of the times I've had to put a book yeah. down. Like it was that much. I'm like, Oh God, I can't do this. And I, and probably, you know, maybe several days, even a week later that I finally picked it up again. It freaked me the hell out. This show can just not get away from it, no matter how hard we try. <laughs> no, no, it can't. Um, it, it can't. It's like it's kind of like this yeah. lodestone around which everything else points. Yeah. But yeah, it, but that's one of the few times um, a book has genuinely scared me to the point where I put it down, and it took several days before I could carry on with it. Um, and and ghost story doesn't have anything quite that powerful, but there are several points in the book where I got like a frisson of that sensation. Um, the, 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 the one where um, Peter Barnes and, and Jim Hardy follow to the train station, where is it Robinson? Yeah, Freddie Robinson. Name. Yeah. Freddie Robinson, when he dies and then they see, uh, they see Fenny Bates crouching on the roof of the station and then, and Jim's like, no, no, I didn't see anything. I didn't see anything. I don't know what you're talking about. Like that just creeped me the hell out. Like it was that, that was, that was, a, that was a genuinely sort of, sort of scary moment in the book where I got a, a sort of hint of that. Oh, that, that actually frightened me a bit. That was most unpleasant. You know, that scene stands out. There's a couple of things like that that do it. I, I, I don't, I very rarely get actually scared by books, but I can very much understand why there are several places in this book where people do get scared. A lot of a lot of horror novels, the horror is brilliant and it really surprises me that people go, oh, yeah, that, that really scared me. Whereas this book, it's, there are moments in this book that are genuinely unsettling and genuinely chilling. And yeah. I think unsettling is the perfect word, the, the perfect word. Um, and I think part of it for me is that that weird sense that you're not quite grasping the parameters of the story. You're never, I don't think you ever feel mm. particularly in control or safe. And it's like, oh, it's like looking in on someone else's dream. 
the, the greatest sequence in the book, I think, is the whole thing with Louis Benedict's death and the bit, and, and it kind of flows into the part where Pete Barnes, the young kid, goes to Lewis's house to confront him over the affair with his mother and then sees awful things happen to his mother in that bedroom. And then that bit when he's walking through the woods and the Jehovah's Witness in the car is just tracking him. And then he gets there, he gets to where, what he thinks is safety, meets his mother. Oh, she's not dead. And then the crushing blow of, oh no, she's just an avatar of whatever this haunting is. She's a manatee, you know. That, I think, there's there are so many little sequences in that piece and it just flows beautifully. I think it's brilliant. Um, but the other one, and it's the thing that most people, I think, remember, if you ask them, is the story, Sears' story about Fenny and Gregory Bate. And to answer your question, John, about whether the the later versions of Gregory and Fenny, Fenny are, are the earlier versions, the only clue I think we have that they may not be is that Gregory is a much more sophisticated speaker when you meet him later in Milburn. He speaks in this kind of slightly neutral voice, like he may just be another version of, of Alma Mobley. You know, I think, whereas Gregory, the original, is this brutish isn't sort of like inbred feral sort of figure. But I think the whole sequence, the whole thing where it's riffing on Turn of the Screw, up to the point where just like the governess in Turn of the Screw, Sears is holding this this boy against him whilst this ghostly assailant is looking through the window. And do you think, just like in, in Turn of the Screw, there is the implication or the ambiguity that, that Sears may have killed the boy? Do you think that tracks across? I, I think you could make that argument. Yeah. I mean, I think it's actually a much more compelling argument in the case of the turn of the screw. Like, I think you can have a long, a much longer debate about that. Mm -hmm. Whereas because, because Sears' story is so compressed, um, it, it seems that the, the, I, ironically to say, it feels ironic to say this about, about ghost story, but that actually feels less ambiguous to me. It does feel a bit more like, no, he died, you know, he, he died because of his brother in, in, uh, uh, or, or because of his inability to connect with his brother, um, he he passes over um, in in some way. But but I have to be honest with you. For me, that's not a strong feeling. Like if you said, no, no, I think you're wrong. I think there is ambiguity. Uh -huh. I would be happy to to say, yeah, okay, yeah. good, because I do think you're wrong. <laughs> <laughs> Apparently, my revenge will extend to Neil McRobert fifty years in the future too. Uh -huh. <laughs> no, because I, I think I don't think you riff on turn the, like the great secret of turn of the screw. I don't think. I mean, you know, Straub referred to himself as the. He said that if King was the Dickens of horror, he was the the Henry James of horror. I don't think you mimic and riff on turn of the screw and don't carry across its its great ambiguity, its great final turn. You know, and I think it's an interesting story, interesting because it makes Sears creepier and more deluded if he's been carrying all this time the sense that he may have inadvertently killed this boy before he even, before even, even Gally even entered his life. I, th I think it's definitely something Sears worries about. I, I think it's not necessarily clear um, whether that is the case or not, but I think there's this kind of undercurrent in Sears's story that he's kind of getting that off his chest in a way is that he never admits to it because you know Sears would never admit to anything like mm -hmm. that because he's the bastard that he is but I felt like there was definitely 
this sense that he carries and has all this time carried a certain responsibility that it might have been him that caused that, um, which is why I think the avatars of AM appear that way to him and he's, and that's why they appear that way to others because it's Sears who gave them form. Um, and, and then there's this repeated motif through the whole thing of the face in the window um, to the point where, as John mentioned, when they're getting rid of the body when they're young men and the car's going down into the swamp and the face in the window. Like the, the, this is a sort of motif that repeats, you know. So I, I think that, that I think that in many ways the whole thing pivots around Sears in that respect. Um and that that's why things are the shape that they are. And, you know, that this is, of all the ghost stories that, you know, we're told many times about how the, the Chowder Society sit around and tell themselves ghost stories, but the only ghost story we hear is that one, Sears' story of, of Fanny Bates. Uh, to go back to Neil's point, um, I think it's really interesting to just, if I were to grab um, one of their most popular quotes from the book is that just that feel that thought of avoidance where you're talking about like maybe Sears did do this and that heavy avoidance in um, what is the worst thing you've ever done? I won't tell you that, but I'll tell you the worst thing that ever happened to me. So it's almost taking exactly he's maybe he's done it, but he's acting like it is something that happened to him. That's a great point because that otherwise that's a really if you actually think about that, like, what's the worst thing you've ever done? If it's not killing Eva Galley, what has this man done that he's not tell that he's not even willing to tell his closest friends about? So, I mean, that's a, I, I almost hope there is something else because that's a really creepy idea. But yeah, I absolutely agree. Like the, the, the opening of this book, like that that very first sentence. You know, what's the worst thing you've ever done? I won't tell you that, but I'll tell you the worst thing that's ever happened to me. The most dreadful. And it takes a long time before we get back to that point that, you know, that is sort of pivotal in everything that goes on. It's such a great opening to a book um, and it takes it takes a long time to pay off. But when and even then, when it does, it's still so ambiguous. But uh, Lauren, I think you're absolutely right. I, I think that that is definitely the, the hint that we're being pushed toward. I think that's what we're being pushed to consider. Yeah, no, that's brilliant. I've never, I've never thought about that distinction before between, you know, being active and being passive, right? So, so if you, because I mean, you know, they all know what the worst thing they've ever done is. They all know that that's in the <laughs> in the background, right? But nobody's gonna, nobody's gonna say that. They, they get, they're haunted. They're part of the ghost story, right? They're haunted by mm-hmm. that ghost story, so they displace it. So supposedly, when Straub was was writing the manuscript, he wrote, as he called it, junked up versions of Hawthorne's by kinsman Major Molyneux and The Fall of the House of Usher. And I, I hope that they're among Straub's papers somewhere. I hope that because yeah. apparently, when when Ricky tells his story, when we don't, when the story suddenly comes to him, that was going to be some kind of version of by kinsman Major Molyneux. And I would love to see what Straub did with those with those stories. I remember reading an interview years ago, I think it may have been the same thing, where he talked about how the book was at the risk of becoming a sequence of knockoff versions of, of better <laughs> ghost stories, you know. Um, but I am I am sad we didn't see them, because I think what this book does for me is the, the sit-down, I-want-to-tell-you-a-story trope. This book's all about that. It's all about the, the art and act of telling stories. And I 
just wish there were more of them in the way that I really wish there were more stories about the club in King's Oeuvre, you know, from Breathing Men, yeah, 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 and yeah. it would not yeah, shake yeah. hands. I want a whole anthology of stories set in that damn club. I might fucking edit the damn thing because it needs to exist. But I love books about people telling each other stories and we get to listen in. And I think there are few examples better than this. And it's stories within stories too. So yeah. it's, it's, this, it's this, like you said, nesting, like you've got this, you've got this group that tell each other stories and Sears tells a story that is not the whole story and it's in avoidance of another story. And then that story is informing the bigger story that we are reading and each of them within that whole narrative has yeah. their own story and their own angle in and everything like that. This is where you mentioned about, you know, the way straw gets all these plates spinning and then draws them together. It It's dense and it's difficult to hold on to, but it is masterfully done. I was a big fan of jazz. Uh, I, I was, I just don't know enough about music to be able to make this comparison effectively, you know, but, but the same way that like a, you know, a jazz band will take a melody and then they'll, they'll play with that melody and they'll come, they'll rearrange the melody and you're like, Oh, right. There's a little bit of it again. And they'll go far away from it, but they always come back to that melody. There's, there's something, something of that here. Um, you know, the, 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 like almost as a kind of a, uh, a compositional principle or something like that. And as I said, I don't know enough about, and I don't think that, that Straub necessarily sat down and was like, okay, here's take five or whatever. And, you know, I'm going to follow that, you know, I'm, I'm going to like sort of arrange my novel that way, but, but almost sort of intuitively or something like that. I, I feel that there's an underlying kind of like jazz uh, kind of principle at work here. I would just love to hear the stories that we could all tell. If we had space enough and time, I would sit here now and, conduct our own little chowder club thing but um <laughs> like all good things even ghost stories must come to an end and we have talked for an hour and 45 minutes and it has ha gone midnight here and my wife's asleep in bed so i think i need to call it a draw um but i think we've done pete some justice there to be honest i mean if you've listened this far listeners i'm assuming you must love the book and i hope we haven't ruined it i hope we're giving you some things to think about and and i i will just say i would love to hear everyone's thoughts on the things we've covered. Um, so drop me an email at talkingscaredpod at gmail.com or on social media at, at talkscaredpod. Right. Well, Alan, Lauren, John, you've all been incredibly generous with your time. So it's only fair you get to promote yourselves right before we finish. So what are you working on? What's out there that you recommend people read? What can we perhaps expect from you in 2024? Let's start with you, Lauren. If you've got anything coming out or anything out there, tell us about Kill Radio. Oh, absolutely. So, um, so yeah, my debut novel, Kill Radio, came out in April this year. Um, and it's out with Malarkey Books, which is an awesome indie press that I'm very fond of. Um, a lot of other good books uh, that they've put out as well. Some horror, other lit fic, etc. Um, and then I, my other one, I don't have an official publisher yet, but it it is partially inspired by a ghost story. But it's, it's more just like small town setting, some things here and there. Um, but yeah, that's I think that's the book that pushed me to be like really into what this book that I'm writing now. Um, so that probably will be out in 2025. Um, sort of not officially titled yet, though. So Okay. Well, obviously, keep me in the loop. Sure. <laughs> Alan? Um, uh, my last novel was Sallow Bend. Um, which was it's sort of small town horror novel. Um, I've got a new book out in May through Cemetery Dance called Blood Covenant, which is, um, you, you mentioned the gulp before, um, 
Neil, that was the gulp and the fall of my sort of books. There'll, there'll be more stories set in that geography as I go. Um, it's, that's my Castle Rock, sort of my my fictional weird geography that I love to play in. Um, <clears throat> and Blood Covenant is a novel that references loosely that it's set in the same loose geography, even though it's not actually one of the tales from the gulp. Uh, but so that, that novel's coming out in May. So Blood Covenant is the next thing to look out for from me for coming out through Cemetery Dance. And I've got you on my schedule to talk about that um, for sure. And excellent, thank you. Go back and listen to my previous episode with Alan because we get deep into the gulp and all things. I, I basically asked him why he moved to Australia and how he's still alive because I'm a British <laughs> um, And that that's episode eighty-six. You should go listen. And John, what about you? What what's coming up? That, that was I just that was a great episode. I, I love those books. The 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 gulp and the, those are terrific books. Um, I mean, Alan's a great writer, but those are those are just terrific books. I'm I'm excited that there's new work coming out set in in that uh, approximate context. Thank you, John. Uh, I'm trying to to I'm, I'm at work on a new novel. I'm trying to finish um, enough of it to send to my agent to see if, if anyone's interested in reading the rest of it. And I hope to have that done before Christmas. Let's, let's say um, there were, uh, I have a short story out in uh, Ellen Datlow's Christmas anthology, uh, which is called Christmas and other horrors. Um, and um, and and a few other stories and in, in various other kinds of, of uh, anthologies, uh, shadows over Main Street three and and such. Um, at some point, I'm going to try to put together another another collection of stories. But uh, mostly, I'm just trying to stay out of trouble, Neil. Mm-hmm. Well, everyone, <laughs> just stay tuned because me and John may be speaking sooner than you expect about about my plans for revenge on Alan. <laughs> I'm here, ready whenever you're done. I really want to make this like a thing so people are like, why do Langan and Baxter hate I don't know, man. I don't just, you know. Thank God they're on opposite sides of the planet from each other. They will never know our beef, John. They will just always know that beef exists. Let's go back to the dangling mystery of this two hours that we spent together. Um, (laughs) Right, listen listen. to the podcast. I didn't get everything, but still. (laughs) Thank you ever so much. It's been an absolute blast. I think People will love this. I hope they will, because I've loved doing it. Um, and, and Alan Baxter, John Langan, Lauren Bolger, thank you for talking scared, and have a good Christmas. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Thank you. You too, Neil. Well, having just reheard the end of that conversation in the edit, I can't believe how desperate I sounded to get off the call. <laughs> um, to be fair, it had been a long day, but I sound like I'm about to just pull the plug on the conversation. Um, John, Alan, Lauren, that's not at all the case. Apologies. That was such a wonderful conversation. And I do think I properly looked out on picking just the right guest to help discuss that particular book. Great rapport despite the blood feud between John and Alan, obviously. Um, Now that you've listened, I'd love to hear your thoughts. I really would love to hear your thoughts on this novel. Where do you stand on the weirdness, on the potential misogyny, on the very character of these old men? 
Um, also, there are more granular questions that we posed but didn't really answer convincingly. Who is Florence de Pesa, this mysterious older woman who's accompanying AM? Um, are the Fenny and Gregory in the later years the same as those that Sears met in his youth? And why aren't Ricky Hawthorne's kids affected by the curse? Let me know what you think. And as I said, you can email me at talkingscaredpod at gmail.com or find me on most social media platforms at talkscaredpod. Peter really did write a book that's ripe for interrogation and conversation. So join in on what we started here. Tell me your interpretations or even if you like the book or not. And I really hope you did. Speaking of contacting me, though, I say this every year, but I mean it. Right, Christmas can be a tough time. I know. I've had one or two tough Christmases in, in my time. And if it is for you this year, for any reason, then I'll be checking my social media DMs throughout the day and in the days to follow. So if you want to share a word or, or anything, just get in touch. I'll be honest, I can't promise to respond to messages immediately, but I will get back to people. And I'd be glad to hear from you if you need, or if you don't need, but... Don't feel alone, because there's a reason we call it the horror community, and I'd be glad to speak to you. And in terms of wider community, I'll be guesting on a really cool-sounding podcast this week, The Failing Writers Podcast. It's, it's funny, unpretentious, occasionally serious. I mean, it's a look at writing, not writing, and thinking about writing, and they chat to distinguished guests from the world of lit and TV and all manner of industry folk, and little old me is going on there to talk about ghost stories, no less. How appropriate. I think I'll actually be judging their ghost story competition, so cue my inflated ego. Yeah, I think that episode is coming out tomorrow, Christmas Day itself, so have a listen, and, and have a listen to those guys generally, because the show is encouraging, and it's insightful, and it's at the very least a good excuse to not do any writing. <laughs> As for this show, it'll be back sometime between now and the new year. The exact date will depend on how bad my hangovers are. Um, but that will be with my final nailed down top 10 horror books of the year. Now I say final and nailed down. Let's face it, it's not, is it? It's changing by the hour. But the top two are locked. I can say that much. If you want more between now and then, remember the Patreon Simple, patreon.com slash talkingscaredpod. It's a few pounds or dollars and you can consider me ticked off your Christmas card list. Otherwise, until next time, lay the traps, arm the children, and get your family prepared for tonight's ho-ho-home invasion. <laughs> Read good books and remember, it's good to be scared. Merry Christmas.